Welcome to the Beyond the Books podcast, where we're talking with the experts solving the world's biggest problems. My name is Jonah Leinwand. And my name is Aryan, and we'd like to welcome you back to season three of the podcast. For today's episode, we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Adrian Brown, who is a deputy program scientist for the Mars 2020 mission at the NASA headquarters. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brown. We've had the opportunity to interview astronaut Chris Hadfield in the past, but you're actually the first guest that we've ever had from NASA. And a lot of people don't know that uh, aside from sending astronauts to space, NASA also has a really robust research program that you're a part of. So could you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Ian and Jonah, for having me on for your podcast. It's fantastic. Uh, yes, yeah, so um, I... Uh, uh, a little bit about what I do is that I'm, the, as you said, the deputy program scientist. So I'm a, I'm a scientist on the mission, which means that uh, I basically we're interested in what the rover is finding rather than how the rover is going. We're interested in how the instruments are, we're interested in how the instruments are um, recording the data of Mars around them rather than the engineers who worry about what and uh, you know how the rover is going how much power it's got how much uh how much stuff has gone onto our lens um as a scientist we're we're always asking questions about the physical environment around us and how it came to be that way so then in terms of that physical environment uh, as a scientist studying extraterrestrial life what are the characteristics that you look for in the data they collect that could possibly indicate something interesting going on on the Mars surface? Right. So um, that's a fantastic question, Jonah. And um, one of my favorites uh, is uh, the question of life. Can we actually find life uh, at our current landing site? Definitely, um, this rover mission was designed to, to look for life. Uh, and uh, uh, and, and almost also we were sent to a, a place that has a stunning um, uh, delta in the middle of it, a delta that was formed by water, running water. Uh, and just like deltas over here on Earth, um, this Martian delta uh, has, uh, has preserved evidence of, of running water in the past. You have to have running water um, for a delta to form. And you have to have a standing body of water also. So a lake must have been present for that water to slow down and dump all of its uh, sediments into the side of the delta as it was coming in. Now we've landed right next to that delta uh, and some people uh, here on earth who study uh, life uh, trapped in deltas actually have uh, found for us the best places around the delta to, to sample. Um, so we, we landed close to the Delta, but um, uh, we landed on the other side of uh, sand dunes. So we're taking our time looking through the sand dunes and finding out a little bit more about how the, uh, the, the rocks inside the sand dunes formed. Um, but they're also of interest too. And um, we've, we've been able to find evidence of uh, uh, what I in particular am interested in is we have a, a mineral called olivine and a mineral called carbonate. And the, the carbonate and uh, olivine combination, they form in a process known as serpentinization. Uh, and that can, that can also power life too. So those are two of our, our biggest 
um, hints uh, about the habitability of our landing sites. And then, and personally, the final thing that I just want to round out is that if, if we are to find um, evidence of life or evidence of microbes, then from our terrestrial experience, we are most likely to find it in the form of, of uh, what we call stromatolites, which are like uh, tree rings that are turned vertically uh, and they form uh, as microbial mats form and trap sediments above them and then grow through and, and, and over, over time they build up layers. Over season to season, they build up layers. And that, that stromatolite that we call, uh, that is a silicified rock, or it's a, it's a, rock, it, it's a microbe that's turning into a rock. Uh, and um, that makes it very difficult to erode away. And so it's, it's the best evidence that we have of early life here on Earth. Uh, and potentially if microbial life was present uh, when, our, when our delta was being formed or in our lake was then we might find evidence of that too. We're definitely looking for those stromatolite-like features and layers um, that would give that away. That's three ways our, um, our landing site might be found to be habitable. That's really interesting stuff. And I know that you've personally studied the Pilbara region in Australia, which is home to some of the earliest signs of life here on earth, 3.48 billion year old life to be exact. Um, how similar is the stuff that you're finding on Mars to the oldest forms of life that we've seen here on Earth? Right, that's a, obviously that's a great question. That's exactly my, um, my interest in the landing site is whether if we can find um, stromatolites back to 3.48 billion years here on Earth. And we've actually dealt with, uh, we've, we've updated the one of the rocks, which has got the delta uh, on top of it. So that's a, we've done, and that's the, on Mars, I should say. So that's a 3.9 billion year old rock sequence that we've, we've been looking at. So 3.9 billion years on Mars um, that we've, and um, 3.48 billion years on Earth. Um, so we're really looking back at the, into the earliest times of the solar system uh, and seeing if there was life we definitely know there was life on Earth at 3.48, probably earlier as well, although the evidence is more controversial uh, and, and not as clear cut as the stromatolite evidence, which only goes back to about 3.5 at the most. Um, so if we were able to find more life on Mars at that time, um, at or at 3.9 billion years old, um, that would be um, a stunning development, obviously, yeah. If our amazing scientists at NASA are able to find life on Mars within, uh, you know, the next few years, how evolved do you think this life form will be? Do you think it will be like uh, bacterial in size or alien-like as depicted in a lot of the movies we've seen today and a lot of the other media representations? Uh, yeah, that's a great question again, Ian. And I think um, personally, I'll... Yeah, I don't want to um, throw the uh, throw out the, any sort of um, conceptions of Martian life that, that people might have listening to your podcast, but um, I'm pretty sure that we're not going to be able to find anything beyond microbial life. Um, we've all, I mean, we've already been looking for Mars, Martian life using orbiters and stuff like that, at telescopes at first, and then orbiters, uh, and those, and scientists using 
um, those orbiting data systems weren't able to find any evidence of uh, uh, any pre-existing structures or anything like that 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 may have been hypothesized in the past, for example, by Lovell and uh, and and uh, earlier uh, scientists who looked at uh, at the red planet. Um, but um, so I do believe though that um, Mars is the second best for uh, uh, habitability in our solar system is the second best planet. And basic, basically that by that I mean that Earth is uh, the first, of course, and then Mars has all the characteristics needed, all the uh, water needed, for example. Um, we know water has been active in, on Mars in the past. It is still most likely um, in a liquid form below the subsurface. So in the past, if, if life had got started on the surface of Mars in the form of microbes, most likely, then it would have uh, potentially, eventually, as the surface cooled, uh, it may have gone below uh, into the subsurface as we know it has here on Earth. Um, so that's another place that we might find um, uh, evidence of, uh, of life and microbial life below the surface. Um, but that's a definite um, possibility that we still have to explore. That's gonna require some serious chops as well. There's yeah. some serious dr drilling on the surface. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I was gonna ask, like all, pretty much all of the microbial life that we have here on earth relies on, on you know, uh, carbon-based uh, carbon sources of energy and, and water. But then if you look at Mars, there's, there's not really much there that we know of besides there being like sand and rocks, right? So how would you, say the bacteria there or or sorry not the bacteria the the life forms there would be able to survive like are there any theories as to how they'd survive yes yes so i do um i i'll just um beg to differ with your uh the, the premise a little bit there because on mars we do have all of the um all of the necessary ingredients uh for a life to to get started and in of course, there isn't liquid water on the surface uh, running now, but um, in the past there was. We have this delta that we're investigating, um, and, um, and and just as much. Uh, well, there is there. We have also found carbonates, uh, and they um, will of course contain carbon, for your example. Um, and so potentially everything was there for. Um, on Mars in the past for life to get started. For um, uh, this is not the case, for example, on the moon, um, which doesn't have anywhere near enough water for, the, for any uh, life to have got started on, on the moon. And also um, uh, you really need water heat uh, and um, there is plenty of heat um, provided by uh, volcanoes on Mars that probably uh, uh, still active, well, still potentially active even today. So um, even in the um, even in the past, Mars could have been uh, a much more inviting um, place for life, and may have got life started. But um, in uh, especially when compared with somewhere like the Moon uh, or Mercury or Venus, um, these places are much more challenging for life to get started and 
and sustain itself. So I know that in the past, you've had some experience uh, researching this topic of life elsewhere, not just at NASA. So you, you spent some time at the SETI Institute in Silicon Valley. For people who don't know, it's another a large scientific organization who is committed to discovering are we alone in the universe. Uh, I'm curious to hear uh, one of the themes that we often discuss in this podcast is research and the, the differences between, let's say, academic research and private research. So having worked at both a government agency and a private institution, uh, how do you find they approach this question of are we alone in the universe? Are there any differences or similarities that you've noticed? Yeah, that's a, that's a really perfect question, Jonah. Um, yeah, so I spent 10 years at SETI and SETI Institute. Um, and I actually was involved in Mars research while I was there. A lot of, a lot of my uh, papers that I published uh, while I was there revolved around Mars. So um, the SETI Institute, uh, to give you a bit of background, it is, um, it's a private organization, but it's a nonprofit organization. Uh, and it, uh, it is divided into, a, uh, into two parts. And one part is the search, the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And that's focused around radio astronomy and trying to find signals from other stars. Uh, and that's been mostly uh, uh, led by Jill Tarter in the past. Um, and um, so, and for anyone who wants a, a flavor of that, I'd suggest going to seeing the movie Contact, for example, or reading the book by Carl, by Carl Sagan. Um, and then, um, then there's uh, another part of the SETI Institute was, the, and still is, the research part of it that uh, where you can be a scientist and you can apply for NASA grants to conduct this uh, research program. Uh, and so that's what I was doing. And so the, the, the research in, in which I was involved was very much something that you could get at any uh, university as a research scientist. Um, but uh, it just happened to be focused inside the SETI Institute. And um, so, but then to, to get to the more interesting part of the question about how, um, how uh, private institutions um, carry out their, uh, their research programs and their research tasks. That, um, that is a very interesting um, question because particularly when focused on things like uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you really just need a telescope to compete in this area, a radio telescope with SETI. So, um, so many people do that. Um, and so uh, no uh, uh, verifiable um, claims or no, no claims of finding these signals have been verified just yet. Um, and so the, the, um, the SETI Institute has to hold itself to a certain standard and it has uh, laid out its standards for finding and verifying signals. So basically, they only they will you know they will double they have double triple checking uh, of all of the signals. They ask other people to look at look at stars for them and stuff like that. So that's that's a very um, uh, 
it's a very tricky process, but it's uh, essentially it relies on uh, the hypothesis building of, of, of scientific programs. Uh, and so the, even, even in, type, in private institutions, I would make the point that it's, uh, it's very important for them to have their links into intellectual um, uh, centers throughout the world. And universities are a great example of that. Although uh, also uh, um, institutions, um, societies, uh, uh, the AAS, all sorts of um, the American Geophysical Union, the SETI Institute ties into those those organizations to maintain its uh, scientific and intellectual credibility, and there really is no other way that it that it could operate. Um, well, there is another way that it could operate, and but that would be outside. Um, and sometimes you find people make claims about uh, about certain, um, you know, finding signals or, or things like that, or uh, make a claim that, a, uh, for example, that a, a the recent um, uh, Hayekamea uh, 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 object that passed through the solar system was actually uh, alien spacecraft um, you know that is actually a possibility but nobody was able to verify it um, so and there another another example is looking through the kepler data for signals that might be of interest and then finding interesting ones that can't be explained by uh, just an orbit or uh, a planet orbiting a star moons or something like that. Uh, and uh, Tabby Star, for example, uh, has a good example of that where um, a group of, uh, of, uh, of members of the public uh, identified a particular star that has, to this day, really been very hard for people to explain. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a system of uh, scientific inquiry that we continue to apply, and we don't decide on anything until uh, until everyone is uh, is until enough people are convinced in in the scientific literature. And one topic that's pretty heavily discussed, not only in media but also by you know a lot of people in the general public, is uh, is colonizing Mars. So. Do you think that the human race's colonization efforts would be impacted if we do find proof on Mars? Yeah, it's another great question, Ian. Uh, this, is, uh, this is one of my favorite questions. I'm glad we got glad we got to it um, because we're in uh, we're in a very exciting phase of we're on the precipice, really, of uh, as we speak of um, the the first uh, the first starship to be launched by um, by SpaceX by Elon Musk, um, and so uh, let me try not to get into trouble here as a um, NASA employee. But um, this is a really exciting thing that, unfortunately, uh, well. Unfortunately, I say yes. Say fortunately, unfortunately, only only one company has 
has, uh, has this ability now uh, to launch this Starship. And so, uh, and uh, there's a lot of uh, power in the hands of that company as a result. Uh, and, and NASA is uh, going to have to, to deal with that in the coming decade. Um, and I, I think it's an exciting challenge um, because I think that SpaceX is, um, I think that Elon Musk has, uh, has the, well, he, he definitely has the scientific and engineering, sorry, he has the engineering capabilities to, um, to carry out the task and the, the push to see things through where other people haven't. Um, so that makes him a very special person indeed, but that also is very tricky to have that one person with so much power over this potential colonization of Mars. Uh, and so that's a, that's a long-winded introduction to my, to my answer to the colonization question, because I think that we're, as I say, sitting at the precipice right now uh, and when the, when the Starship launches, probably next year, in January next year, um, from Texas and then flies uh, orbitally and then lands in, in Hawaii, that, that will then complete essentially the building of the battle station, if you will. That is uh, then going to have them technically where they can um, launch that same Starship off to Mars. Uh, and, then, and then obviously they'll be improving on on that, but that it gives them their first capability of sending objects to Mars and to start to build that colony. And so um, the question, as, as, you, as you rightly point out, is scientifically, are, are there any, uh, uh, well, it's not really a scientific question so much as a um, uh, humanitarian type of question of, if we find life on Mars, or if uh, if life is present on Mars, and we only find it after we send colonies there, how how are we going to deal with that, and how and whether we should um, bring that uh, if that uh, if it's a dormant form of life that we can bring back to life, that would be fascinating too. Or if it's something that we turns out to be uh, still active deep below the subsurface. Uh, what happens if our activities are uh, threatening that, that life? That will be very, that's a very big question. Um, I think that that is, uh, essentially that's uh, part of the purview of NASA's uh, Office of Planetary Protection, um, but it's, it's going to rub up against the, uh, the plans of SpaceX um, and if, um, certainly scientists are going to continue to look uh, for evidence for life on Mars and for habitability uh, for locations on Mars that might be more habitable uh, and potentially had life in the past. So that's obviously that's going to be something that just scientists will naturally be questioning uh, and they'll be part of the payload as well. There'll be some scientists uh, on board the, the SpaceX first flights, I'm sure. So this will be very um, a powerful question for those teams to address as they fly to Mars. I think. This is such an interesting topic. And 
if we're being realistic, we probably could schedule another episode where we just talk more about uh, this question here alone. Um, but for the sake of time, we're going to move on to our final concluding segment, which is a recurring segment this season called Factor Fiction, where we like to pose some uh, statements, let's say, to our guest. And you can answer in just a couple sentences. Is it fact? Is it fiction? Or maybe somewhere in between. Does that sound good? Sounds great to me. Awesome. All right, I'll get started. So the first question is, Mars used to have an Earth-like environment in its early history. Fact or fiction? Man, you, these are tough. That, uh, let's go with fact. You want to maybe explain why that's true? Back up I would say yes, because uh, I would say that it's definitely more of like uh, in the past than, than it is today. Um, the question still lingers over how Earth like it may have been, how much, uh, how much uh, water was in the past uh, on the surface of Mars? Do we have an ocean present? Or was it just uh, raining uh, and water was collecting up in the mountains and then flowing down and, you know, in, in, uh, uh, and then flowing down in, from ice sheets as it warmed uh, seasonally? So it just had that style of water cycle, water cycle, or was, or was there a, a just a muddy um, northern hemisphere? I hope uh, the northern hemisphere is much flatter than the south, so some um, reason has to be given for that. We don't actually, you know, we have a hypothesis that potentially there was a water ocean there, but by visiting that um, with humans, I, I'm sure that we'll be able to answer that question positively or negatively. So. So that will be, uh, that will definitely be, make it into a more of a Mars, of, of an Earth-like environment in the past. Is that too uh, much, Steve? No, that's great. That's really interesting. So fact or fiction, NASA control centers, like we see in the movies, have super high-tech equipment. Um, well, fact, because uh, that is true. Uh, we, in particular for the our mission, the, the Mars uh, 2020 mission, we have a we have a whole warehouse of people with uh, technology up to their armpits, where they're um, uh, on a daily cycle. They're, they're basically put, putting plans together for the for the rover to execute the next day. That's a lot of what I'm what I do on the mission is helping out with the, that style of uh, of uh, uh, operations for the rover. Uh, and to make that happen, we have to have a big uh, uh, um, area where the uh, uh, a mission control center, where we have uh, scientists uh, and engineers working together to come up with those plans. Um, for the for a lot of the parts, um, we actually have virtual participation now, which makes it even more of a technical and um, technological wonder, if you will. But it's more like a um, it's more like NASA has a web of scientists all over the world um, working on the, the 2020 mission. So, yeah, the, the next factor fiction is within the next 100 years, humans will colonize Mars. Fact, yes, I, I believe that'll be the case. 
essentially, as I uh, mentioned five minutes ago, we have uh, the, the SpaceX is having there already has the that company was basically built to to uh, colonize Mars. We're now in the precipice of them having that capability. Next year, they'll be they'll be testing that capability around Earth, and then that will happen. Yes, definitely within the next 10 years, we'll see that start. And um, every about every two years, we have a point uh, where Mars crosses close to the closest in its orbit to Earth. So those sort of cycles, we'll see uh, Martian colonizers to uh, three cent every 18 months or two years, roughly, uh, to, uh, to Mars and that sort of cycle. I'm sure it'll start with the small number, but then uh, grow grow larger. So that by ten, yeah, by the end of the ten years from now, a decade from now, we'll definitely see that activity start. Well, to anyone listening, that's your cue. Uh, start applying to be an astronaut now, because there will be chances for you to go to Mars. Um, yes, or- and um, also, I should say that the people who will be uh, the people who will be colonizing Mars, aren't all going to be NASA astronauts. That much is clear. So um, the first few may be astronauts, uh, potentially, that, but I fancy that um, Elon Musk uh, being the, the mindset that he is, uh, he's more about the common man being sent to, to Mars rather than astronauts or some sort of chosen few or anything like that. So. Uh, even though he, uh, I think he celebrates excellence or whatever in certain sense, and he's a very elitist type of guy. But but at the same time, um, to populate these ships, he's definitely going to be using not just astronauts, but you know when you when you're taking a hundred people on a, one of these starships, that you know those people are not going to all just be astronaut um, trained. In fact, they, if they're trained as astronauts, that that might not be appropriate to the jobs they, that they're going to be doing uh, on Mars. So, so that's something also to consider: is get a job that can take you to Mars that you make that'll make you useful on Mars. I think that's a great way to end the episode. Get a job that will get you to Mars. I love it, uh, Doctor Brown. Thank you so much for joining us today. What an interesting episode uh, for everyone listening. My name is Jonah Linewand. And my name is Aryan Singh. And we'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Beyond the Books Pod, and we'll see you next week.